Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello and welcome. It's another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. I'm going to be pulling out an interview with a singer named Melissa Erico. I'll be talking about her in just a moment, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about what inspired me to bring this interview out of the archives. A lot of you are probably aware that the great composer Michel Legrand has passed away. He passed away January 26, 2009, at 86 years of age. I think he was one of the greatest composers in music. When I think about the great composers in the world, I think about Johnny Mandel, Burt Bacharach. But first on my list was always Michel Legrand. He wrote more than 200 film and TV scores, popular songs. Some of the absolute greatest singers in history recorded his songs. Frank Sinatra, Lena Horne, Sarah Vaughan. Probably one of his most famous compositions would be The Windmills of Your Mind, which appeared in the movie A Thomas Crown Affair. I believe that song won an Oscar for him. Michel Legrand was a composer, a songwriter, a pianist. He sang, he made records. It was said about him that he surrounded himself with music. This interview that I'm going to be playing for you all is with Melissa Errico, who is an actress of singer and of the Broadway stage. She starred in quite a number of Broadway musicals, and she's released some albums. We did this interview back a few years ago. We were exploring the release of Melissa Errico's album, which is entitled Le Grand Affair. It's a collection of songs composed by Michel Legrand, who's produced by the late Phil Ramone and performed by Melissa Errico. She was accompanied by a 100-piece symphony orchestra in Brussels. There's going to be a lot of things we touch on in the interview, but one of the central focuses in the interview was Michel Legrand. So this interview is being put out there in memory to him. I hope you all enjoy the album, Le Grand Affair, is absolutely beautiful. A wonderful representation of his music. I hope you all check it out. It's our pleasure to welcome our special guest, Melissa Errico. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Who is Melissa Errico? <laughs> Are you asking me that? Is that, a, is that my profound question of the day? I need a psychiatrist. <laughs> Do you want me to answer that, or is that is that a yeah. beginning of, of a speech? Okay. <laughs> Who is she? She's me. I think the person I'm I'm in this body right now. And but I'm a, I'm a, I mean, do you really want to know who I am? Okay, I'll tell you who I am. I'm a singer and a mother, and um, a wife and a daughter. I think you're probably most interested in my professional um, identity. And I started very young in theater and almost kind of got my meaning of life in a way from a Broadway show. I was an 11-year-old watching a Broadway show, and I had one of those moments where I turned to my mother, and I literally was bawling. And I there was something I identified with. So I, I sort of had a dream, very young, to be a part of the theater community. So that's been very def- one of the very defining qualities of my life, and so on and so on until today. So I could fill in some dots if you want. <laughs> What music did you first fall in love with? Well, I think the music I probably first fell in love with is the music my father played in the house. My father's a concert pianist, 
his specialty was Chopin. So the the house was always filled with classical music and filled with um, my father's temperament. He would go off into sort of reveries, and I think I always was curious about that. He's a kind of a quiet guy. He was a doctor, and he'd been to Vietnam, and he was a intense person, not the easiest. doesn't have, like, an easy, light manner. He's gotten better, actually, and more easy to relate to as he's gotten older, but music was always um, mysterious, the way it came flowing out of him, or no, nothing else that was as easy or was as playful. So I think maybe there was a mystique about music, because there was a mystique about my father, but that's just from a young person's perspective. No, I have not been through a lot of psychotherapy. So, And my mother is a dazzling, very funny, goofy kind of vaudevillian, but as beautiful as a Marilyn Monroe. She sort of modeled her appearance in the late 50s and 60s after Marilyn, and she's blonde with the with the black eyeliner and this beautiful fit shape. And my mother always loved theater and loved crying and loved music. And her mother was an opera singer. So there was a bit of the Italian drama in the house. My, they're a fully Italian family, and my father with his moody music and my mother with her dazzling personality. I think it was a kind of a natural, because Broadway can encompass the classicist and the goof and the glamour. And my mother enjoyed plays so much as I got interested in them. So her enthusiasm and her playfulness, coupled with my sense of like what a beautiful ballad is, kind of created a sensibility for me that I brought to musical theater. Anyways, a lot of music in the family and a lot of emotion in the family, Italian sort of stuff. And my grandmother filled the house with opera singing. She lived with us or nearby my whole life, and she had my father playing Puccini and everything she loved to sing. She was a frustrated opera singer who came over from Italy to sing. My grandfather wouldn't have it. I think my father's marriage to my mother was a good thing for Nana because she could sing a lot because <laughs> he played so well. So anyway, there's music. Those are the I would say those are the primary influences. Sort of my mother's fantastic, complicated personality and my father's very romantic nature and maybe my grandmother's actual singing voice. Those are influences. I mean, that's when you live in your own home and before teachers and before music comes into the house and records and Donnie and Marie and Roberta Flack and. Donald Fagan landed, you know. What I mean, literally, those are the things that come to mind. I mean, growing up in the 70s, you know. What about your favorite songwriters, both lyricists and composers? Who are they? Well, and I'm, this is not a, this is not spin. I mean, my most favorite songwriter was, was always Michel Legrand. My mother and father had a little thing for his the movies and his songs, and that would be like pop music in my house. And I loved his music. Watch What Happens and The Summer Knows. These songs were, I mean, I was singing How Do You Keep the Music Playing when I was like 10. I mean, I knew it was about marriage. I mean, you know, I only just now understand it because I'm married 14 years. But So Michelle Legrand is one of the icons and heroes of my life. I never would have imagined ever meeting the man. I didn't know he was even alive. I didn't know what era he was from. And then I meet him and I'm starring in his Broadway show a few years ago. You know, the whole thing was so surreal. But I would say Michelle Legrand was is one of the most incredible sort of paths in my life of like loving someone's music and having the great destiny to meet him. But I like a lot of people's music. I mean, in theater circles, I'm really enjoying some of the more sort of contemporary stuff like Stephen Schwartz's music and Rupert Holmes and the classic stuff. I mean, Finian's Rainbow, things like nothing like a Burton Lane song, really, (laughs) and Yip Harburg. 
the How, How Are Things in Glockamora and a song like that would pretty much be a song I'd never let go. You know, things that stay with you. I'm always falling in and out of love with composers. I mean, for one whole summer, all I wanted to sing was Arlen, like two years ago. But I don't, I, Sleeping Bee might be the only song that's sort of still in my mind that I can sing like right now. But some things stay with you forever. A song like How Are Things in Glockamora or even The Boy Next Door. Certain songs are always, I would say, as well as they're everyone else's, they're always mine. Like I always, always feel ready to sing them. And maybe of the old, old Tin Pan Alley, sort of Rogers and Hart, I really enjoyed the jazz and the, I, I really, I just really enjoyed the score of On Your Toes. And that, mu- that music is, is embedded in my head. And I know I've spun through some of the old classics, but sort of the more modern composers of musical theater, Rupert Holmes and Stephen Schwartz, are some, I'm singing them a lot in my concerts right now. And, and Michelle Legrand is always now in my, for about the last six years, because I've been working with Michelle, his melody is probably the, the top, the top of the list. How did you meet Michelle Legrand? He wrote a Broadway show. He actually wrote a, a musical that that premiered in Paris, and it was titled Le Passe Muraille, which means the man who walks through walls. And it was he musicalized a very popular French surrealistic short story by Marcel Aimé, which in France is like as common as you know reading Oliver Twist in school or anything else that's that's a standard of, of French literature. And it's a, about a man who walks through walls. That one day this ordinary civil servant comes home and takes out his key and finds he's already in the other side of the door. So he he goes from having an ordinary life to an extraordinary life. And it's it's all the story that then he becomes an amazing burglar and all these fa- fabulous things. And he becomes sort of a celebrity, and but nobody knows who he is. And anyhow, it's a very it's a strange little surrealistic book. And Michel Legrand wrote a musical based on this. And he always called it an opera bouffe, like a, a farce or something, a, a he never meant it to be a, a big serious thing. It was a bit of a, a wonderful thing that this man walks through walls and the way in which his life changes and he falls in love with this lovely girl and all the people on the street in Paris and who they are. And Jerry Schoenfeld, the iconic Jerry Schoenfeld, who's the, known as the, the the titan of the Schubert organization, the Broadway organization, who's now deceased. Jerry saw it in Paris and got obsessed with it. He loved Michel Legrand. He knew of his you know endless Oscars and his hundreds of movies and obviously all the recordings of Streisand and Sarah Vaughan and all that. Jerry's a fan of Michelle Legrand's music, but Michelle's never done a play. And here was this little play in Paris that Jerry thought was freaking great. He loved it. He thought it was fantastic, unusual. And Jerry decided it had to be on Broadway. And he hired James Lapine to direct it. James Lapine, who is a frequent collaborator with Stephen Sondheim and Pulitzer Prize winner and a writer and a director. So someone very possibly very well suited to translating something from another language or working with a translator and making the thing make sense because he has a writer's sensibility as well as a director. Anyway, James directed a Broadway show and they retitled it Amour. As that all came together to the United States, it was became a Broadway show and I was the, the leading lady. And that's how I met Michelle. What was it like for you when you met him? Uh, <laughs> it was great. It was great. You know what? It was like I saw him across the room and I knew that face so well because I'm really a fan. I mean, I'm a music fan. Of it. I'm a, I saw the eyebrows, the glasses, you know, everything that anyone who's a fan of Michelle would think. There's the face. He was in the room. 
you know, I don't have a lot of fanny experiences, nor do I have a lot of Hollywood attachments or anything that I'd sort of go crazy if I saw someone. But the fact that he was alive and in the room, more than alive, he's young, you know, it was incredible. And I was, I was calm. I was really excited. I was just really, really proud to be in the room and to be a part of his project. And it, it didn't take him 10 minutes or it certainly didn't take him five days before he understood that I was in love with the music and really well suited to it and and also knew his other songs. So if he was relaxing or playing or had his, something I wanted him to sign, you know, I always should have surprised him with something. As the show went into previews, we had some pretty notorious problems. Because the play is so much about special effects and magic and people, particularly this man walking through walls, we had a lot of problems with the set. <laughs> and the set was falling and actually fell into the audience one day and it was really dangerous and so previews were really fraught and really, really, um, not upsetting, but upsetting for some people, I'm sure. But in general, they were a very frustrating time. And almost every day we had notes and things had to be changed. And Michelle was told that the audience likes when I sing his songs. And they need more songs for Isabel. So more and more and more in previews, there were at least two songs were added and, and lyrics or, you know, a, a duet line or a something off in the mist over here and Isabel over there. And, you know, I had things to learn all the time. So Michelle and I were given the chance to, or I was given the to run down to the lobby, to the basement lobby of the Music Box Theater where there was a piano. And Melissa, Melissa, last night I was doing this, this song. She will be in the window. What do you think, you know? And so he, he would be writing something. Or I would come up and say, well, if this woman is obsessed with her housework and I wrote a song with him by saying, I know the character was a housewife and was a sort of repressed and unhappy person, but she had a, they wanted her to have a fantasy life and they had her obsessed with flowers and sort of her garden, but they, they thought it'd be funny if she was bad at it. And they hadn't really developed another escape route for her, just for her spirit. And I, we thought about what if she was in, in trance with these magazines like Paris Match and, you know, celebrities and other people. Because she doesn't think of herself. So he wrote a song in previews called Other People's Stories. And it's all about her reading this magazine. So every time she gets out of the house or can get away from her husband, she opens a magazine and she gets lost in other people's stories. And it's a lovely song. And I never learned it because uh, it was so long and difficult that I just got the magazine and I put the lyrics in the magazine. So the audience had no idea. I didn't know what I was doing. But I was just reading the lyrics, you know. But it's a wonderful story. Anyway, I'm sure I eventually learned it. But I do remember having to have a cheat sheet on Broadway because I only had a few hours notice with this lovely melody. So that's all on the cast album if anyone's interested. It's beautiful, beautiful, charming little song about all the celebrities and all the things that enticed her and let her lose herself because she wasn't, she wasn't a very, she was living behind her own walls, as it were, in the metaphor of the book. So anyhow, the time with Michelle was priceless, and it, it did it did bond us. I mean, we had such a good time, and when the show ended, it was it was it was impossible to say goodbye for me. And um, I went off into another Broadway show. I was the star of Dracula, <laughs> which was a real doozy. Not the most artistic experience of my life, but but it had a lot of merit too, and a lot of great people working on it. But when it was over, Michelle said, "Now you have time. I will come to New York. We will talk." We will talk about music. We will talk. I don't want to, I'm not mocking him with the accent. I'm just giving you a sense of his enthusiasm. <laughs> he's a playful person is all I mean to say. He's boyish. He's upbeat. He's, he's for, a, for a man of advanced age, he's an 
incredibly youthful and optimistic and mischievous and willing, erratic. And I didn't really know that anything would go anywhere because he's not necessarily the type of person that all his enthusiasm would, would be linear and would, would end up with a product. But he's no fool. He actually, in a few days of work, I knew Michelle was coming to my house and Dracula had closed. And I spent weeks and weeks and weeks compiling a binder, a, a big binder of all his songs. And these are songs that no one would have. I through his manager and through the grapevine, I found out of some jazz guys and music fans and one particular gentleman named Greg Toroyan who had an incredible, incredible Michelle Legrand collection. And he shared it with me. And so I was able to do research and have research really, really organized, like alphabetized in this big binder. And Michelle, when he arrived, was gobsmacked by it. And he was able to go through it and just start choosing and Sometimes he would look at me and say, no, like he would just look at a song and me and it would be, you know, wrong. And I hadn't even heard it or tried it. We got to about 40 songs over a few days where that he felt that were a good match. And that was hard to get to 40. And then the, a week had passed and we'd, have, we'd spent hours and hours a day singing, reminiscing, having lunch. My husband would bring sandwiches. And I was so flattered. And I didn't know when, you know, this good luck would end, you know. but. I enjoyed watching some of his old movies with Patrick, and I had no children at the time, so the apartment was quiet. And this master was in my house, and he had a, he in a short period of time, we both were gravitating towards certain types of music and a kind of an approach that was ironically not theatrical at all. He didn't want to hear any belting, he didn't want to hear anything loud, he didn't want anything showy. I think he was possibly feeling. Um, slightly offended by the Broadway aesthetic that was what, what was popular while our show was not, not successful. I haven't actually thought of it this way, but it's possible that I went to see a show that was a big hit that year. You can do some of the guessing of what it would be, but we went to see the most popular show of that season, or one of them. When we left, after a standing ovation, we had witnessed a standing ovation for a really simplistic and loud show. Michelle doesn't like really loud things. We were walking, you know, he walks slowly and he's holding my arm. We were leaving the theater. And he says, Melissa, we are like the walking wounded. He was really offended by the show. And I think he finds a lot of Broadway to be hard-selling and small-minded at the same time. So, you know, it is what it is. Michelle has really strong feelings about things. And he wants to feel big feelings even in tender songs, but he wants to hear, feel things. And I don't think he was feeling anything. So it might have been something to do with that, that. Maybe there was some association to me with Broadway, Broadway. And he just, so he didn't come up with some theater songs that I could sing, or he didn't even want me to sing On My Way to You, which is, he thought, too theatrical. And there was a kind of a spirit, maybe a sort of a kindness or something. I've always felt some, I felt something so sincerely about his music long before I met him. And I really think the project from beginning to end has, oh, there's no doubt my heart was in this and it was, it came from a true place of respect. He was the composer or I'm not even going to say a mentor, but just he's a master who I had a chance to meet and I did everything I could to honor that from beginning to end. The only interruption in the process after we eventually did this big, big recording with the Brussels Philharmonic. The only interruption was that I got pregnant. My husband and I were looking at the 
biological clock. And so I didn't mean to interrupt the record, but I did get pregnant. My pregnancy with my first child took me on a whole different road, sort of sick and little illness and discomfort. And it was hard to finish Michelle's record and to think I was giving it the focus it needed. And it took me a couple of years. I had three kids. And this record sat on my brain like I was really, really involved in birth and in motherhood and everything. But I never forgot I hadn't finished it. And I was trying to figure out how does one get mentally back to that piece, that place, that room, and yet holding now all the emotion and wisdom of motherhood that those songs can now contain, which is not what Michelle events, you know, initially had offered. He didn't offer this musical mother, but I became a mother of three. And his music is mythic. I mean, maybe someone dreamed us. A song like that is a mythic song. It's enormous. And nothing to me at the moment is more mythic than, you know, new life and the humility of it all and birth and change and aging. And so in some weird way, the record was like changing because I was this young, lucky ingenue in New York with the master and then suddenly I went down the road I'm nothing I'm a mother I'm not nothing I'm like a I'm a cog in the wheel of mother nature you know I'm a small but in honor of the largeness of the universe as it were weirdly enough the record seemed something that I wasn't doing the record got bigger as my life got changed and I really wanted all of it to be contained I know that's put a lot of pressure on the record but I just wanted to make sure it, it was good so I took six years to make it would it be possible to pick a favorite song from the album? Not really. I could think of highlights. Well, it sort of depends on which quality of Michelle I wanted to share with your audience the most. I mean, there's there's nothing as maverick as Michelle Legrand's mind when you hear something like Windmills of Your Mind and what he did to it for me. Such a good song. It's such a good song. It's such a classic. I'll tell you before you introduce it or you play it, it's just that Michelle and I uh, talked a little bit about insomnia. I suffered insomnia when I was a young actress. You may have deduced I'm a slightly restless person. And insomnia was really an unfriendly part of my um, my life and very unuseful. Um, but Windmills of Your Mind really made... I wanted Michelle to orchestrate sleeplessness. And the, I was sure that that song could contain, what, for me, like what it feels like to be a genuinely sleepless person, which I am not any longer. So I don't know what children have made me so tired that I sleep so well. But, but the windmills of your mind, like everything you ever were, every relationship you ever had, you can't remember the guy's eyes. You can't remember anything. So I asked Michelle to go into the bridge and maybe go into like a Latin thing. So it's like you had some sexual memory or some... Thing, some time where you were young and good looking and you were in, on a vacation or something and you have no idea what happened, who it is. It's all not there anymore. It's like it all comes like sand through your fingers, gone. You can barely remember how it felt. So Michelle took a lot of my thoughts. He loved my mind, you see, too, I think. I mean, I don't want to speak for him, but not loved my mind, but he, un- he, he got material for orchestration from my opinions, for sure. He, he surely was, was listening to me. And so windmills, you might hear some of that. What would sleeplessness sound like? Tell us about the song that was written for this album. You know, I didn't have any input into what the what the lyrics would be. The way that it works with Michelle Legrand and the Bergmans um, is there's only been one song in their collaborative history where the um, lyrics preceded the melody. 
Alan says that, that Michelle is like a faucet, and you turn it on, and then you turn it off. Like, the, the melody just comes. That Michelle is amazing. And, he, and Alan Bergman says he has to record Michelle, and has always had to record him, because Michelle can't remember what he did the minute it's done. The Windmills of Your Mind was written, the melody was written, as all of the, the songs, the melody's written first, and then they have to just go figure it out. So he, they were given da 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 and they just had to figure it out. They were brilliant at that. But the one time they gave him a sentence first was they told him we need a song that starts, what are you doing the rest of your life? And he just went to the piano and he went, what are you doing the rest? He just came, he just, his fingers were just thinking what they said. So that's the only time that Michelle followed direction, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> I, I mean that lovingly. But, you know, he's he's so creative that you it's some, he's almost someone you chase. He's pretty exciting. There's nobody like him in the world. What I like about the record is that it's, it's a real celebration of his um, intelligence and his imagination. I really wanted to make sure, as much as I sure like to pop my career up a notch or whatever. I really, I really wasn't the star of my own record. I really, it's a duet. And for years there was a lot of debate about it. I've had two managers come through my life where they tried to pare the orchestrations down and bring on Steve Gadd, the world's greatest drummer who's on the record and make it more of a trio sound with orchestral, what do they call it, beds in the background so that I'd be the star, the only star. But you know what? It's okay because this is not about me. This is really about me and the presence of this man. And my, I think, if I may, that's what it's about. And the songs, what they mean, balanced with his imagination at this point in his career, which is really important. You get to a point in your career and he's still caring and loving his own songs and exploring them. What a incredible, it doesn't get any better. We don't pay attention to old people. A Monday, I had a chance to, to listen very closely to Peter Schaffer, the elderly playwright who wrote Equus and Amadeus, and I was at an event, and I last summer, I did a reading of a play called The Gift of the Gorgon, which has never been seen in America, so I'm the only American who's ever performed that play, so I kind of know Peter Schaffer. I'm not saying I'm his best friend, but he does like me, and so he's holding my hand, and I lean in, and he's looking around this room, it's a very show-busy kind of room, and he says, everyone now is so small. (laughs) I don't know what he means, but he feels the work is small. He's going to shows and people are getting famous for things he thinks are are not substantial or substantive. I like these old guys, you know, when they get older and they get so so inspired again, that's all. You know, it's interesting. You know, mind you, he's not that old. I don't mean to, but it it is, you know, at a certain point, it is an incredible opportunity to, to continue to be creative with all that human history behind you, you know. What about the song Once Upon a Summertime? Oh, Once Upon a Summertime, that's our duet. That's a really interesting story. It's one of Michelle's first hits. If I'm not mistaken, he was a teenager when it was a success in France. And Blossom Deary heard it on the radio and told Johnny Mercer that he should write the English lyric. And Johnny Mercer was a good deal older than the young Michelle, and they collaborated once, and that's their one collaboration. Michelle and I sang that as a duet on the album. Over the years, there were actually many more duets. That's the only duet that remained. I'd like to say it was always chosen as a little 
bonbon at the end, late in the record as a thing between us. But there were other duets. Michelle got cut. <laughs> it wasn't all that good all the time. <laughs> so we play to each other's strengths, you know. <laughs> but I love the song, and I love singing with him, and I am so happy that it exists from a personal standpoint and so that people can also hear how much he loves singing. He loves to sing. And he's so brilliant. Did you hear in Once Upon a Summertime or when you get a chance to listen to it again, he does a scat where he does a call and response with the orchestra. And you have to remember the symphony was 100 people. On a the average day was 100. It was 105. It would be, you know, 99 people. I mean, we, it was a 100-piece symphony. And Michelle wrote a scat where he goes, da-dee-da-da, and the orchestra answers him. And he says, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And this, and this, you know, the oboes or whoever go, the flutes, I think, in that case. And he sang with all the parts. So he actually went sort of systematically through all the corners of the orchestra. And he interacted with them like a puppeteer, effortless puppeteer of sound. Unbelievable amazing. human being. Amazing, amazing. You can see that I am genuinely, I mean, it's amazing. My My hat's off to him. What is the best thing about being Melissa Errico? I'm always so frustrated, but the best thing is probably my children. I have three daughters that are so sensual and yummy and kissy, and they're three beautiful girls who are complicated and arguing over Barbies and so visceral. I mean, right now, to have their affection and the way they climb on me, it's almost like one of those old statues, you know, with all the babies climbing on some woman, you know, like those what were they called, in Renaissance paintings or something. But, I mean, right now the best thing is like that, is that, you know, my career doesn't doesn't necessarily always feel easy or where I'd like it to be or stopping to have children is, is not necessarily a great thing for your career. I don't always feel like I have all that rolling. I love, love, love to sing. But the thing that's just easy flow between me and the universe and my me and my children, like I love them, they love me, and there's no... I don't need an agent to, to work with, to help me with that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I don't need anyone to make a phone call for me. <laughs> Can you yeah. call Victoria and see if she'll give me a kiss right now? I don't need anybody to wheel and deal or see if there's a part available. Or My children and me are, are, and my husband, you know, we're right there. So I'd have to say that's the best thing. It isn't to say it's the only thing, but it's the easiest and the most fulfilling in terms of, like, it's, you get more than you ever imagined back from one kiss, snuggle. So I guess that's a silly answer, but I mean that's where you get it all, you know. A lot of things that are nice. I mean, I, I live a nice life. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm I strive. I wanna, you know, I, I wanna try to make sense of a very long career that I've had. That's, that's been. I mean, anyone who's had my career deserves to be insane. I mean, it's been very frustrating and rocky. It could have been easier. I mean, I started in My Fair Lady when I was 22, but. It was with Richard Chamberlain and very complicated circumstances that ensued. With the concept of the show, My Fair Lady was conceptually going to be deconstructed and not be like the classic show you think of. We had this pretty edgy, interesting idea that was being worked on. But My Fair Lady was meant to be a kind of terrifying, deconstructed treatise on sort of social engineering, almost like Frankenstein, like this man creating a woman creating Eliza Doolittle, creating. So it actually was a really interesting and also historically accurate sort of idea. 
George Bernard Shaw's sort of era. These were currents of thought at the time. But anyway, to, to get the chance to be the star on Broadway of My Fair Lady at 22, it could have been like a beautiful dress, a beautiful production, and a Tony Award. <laughs> but instead, it had to be this complicated fiasco. Led me to like great reviews, but a rocky production and a frustrated leading man. And because Richard Chamberlain is not alternative artist, he's a, a matinee idol and a terrific guy, but he didn't necessarily want to be a part of a deconstructed, complicated leftist musical. Not that he put it this way, but you know, now that looking back 20 years or 15 years ago, you know, my career has been crazy. So all these things kind of come together. As you're, you, know, you get older and you think, okay, I have kids. I took a big pause. God bless Michelle Legrand that I was even able to have this project. And I'm so glad that someone like you likes it and that it has merit in your eyes and some maybe other people like it. I'm just, it was something I tried to rally all my strength and intelligence and care and love and vocals and everything. Because I see its value and its value in Michelle's personal history as well as mine. So I'm so happy for that. But now I really feel like I'm starting all over again in my career. What would you like to say to all of our listeners? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> what would I like to say? I hope you enjoy the album and you'll keep your eyes open for what's next. And I'll see you on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> Thank you very much for this interview. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciated the fact that I got to do it. And thanks for letting me come here and talk about it. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. For more information or to subscribe, visit thepaulleslie.com. For more information on our interviewee, Melissa Errico, just visit melissaerico.com. Until next time. Bye-bye, doodly beep. Goodbye.